Well, some of you noticing that our text this morning and this evening are from the book of Revelation are wondering whether this is actually a missions conference or a prophecy conference. Are we going to be talking about the spread of the gospel among the nations of the world or are we going to be trying to probe the secrets of God's plan for the present and, and the future? And I can reassure you the answer is definitely yes. We're definitely going to be talking about those two things. We're going to be talking about what eschatology has to do with the global mission of the church. Eschatology is a fairly long word derived from Greek. It just means the, the words about the last things, uh, what the Bible says about events that will bring history as we know it to an end. And often when people learn that I've actually dared to write a commentary on the book of Revelation, which I never thought I would do, uh, of course their question is, so do you think we're in the last days? Do you think we're in the last days? And I know what they're thinking of. They're thinking of events that began in the 1940s in the Middle East, or they're thinking about traumatic catastrophes like earthquakes and tsunamis. They're thinking maybe about the rise of radical Islam, global wars, ruthless tyrants. But of course, when they ask me that, I always say, absolutely we're in the last days. I know that because it says so in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In that letter sermon to the Hebrews, the writer begins that sermon by saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. So the last days dawned the first time Jesus came to earth, when the eternal Son of God became incarnate. All that he did his perfectly obedient life, his miracles, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that's all the beginning of the last days. Peter said as much on the day of Pentecost, didn't he? As people were wondering, why are we hearing the mighty deeds of God, which is really a way that Luke summarizes the sermon about Jesus' death and resurrection. Why are we hearing these in all the languages of all the nations assembled for that great feast, Peter says this just as God keeping his promise through the ancient prophet Joel. God said through Joel, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men's shall, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Actually, Peter commented in quoting on Joel. Joel technically says, after this, Peter says what Joel is referring to is these last days. The mark of the last days, which began with the first coming of Christ, which began when Jesus emerged from the tomb and took his seat at the right hand of God. The mark of the last days is that the nations hear the mighty saving work of God, each in their own heart language each in their own heart language. As Luke says in summarizing the crowd there that day, there were people from every nation under heaven. A first fruits, a foretaste of what we see continuing even in our days. So the last days are that era in which the great redemptive work of Jesus is going forward. And Peter and James and John knew that the seed of the final new heavens and new earth had been planted even in the soil of this 
messy, miserable age that we still live in. But that seed was growing and would grow, beginning small like a tiny mustard seed, but would grow to fill the nations of the earth. But the soil's not always friendly. And John, of course, knew that when he received these visions. He was on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor. Rome used Patmos sort of the way the state of California used to use Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay. Uh, You probably have had the good sense not to go all the way to the West Coast. There's a lot of crazy people out there. Uh, Some of them we used to put on Alcatraz, uh, dangerous criminals, and Rome also put political insurrectionists there, subversives. And so the apostle was there, uh, apparently a dangerous political fellow, I guess. He was there on the island of Patmos, uh, and that's where he received these visions. And his situation is a kind of a, a miniature, a microcosm of the condition of the church in Asia Minor. The, the churches in these seven cities, some of them prominent, some of them not so large, uh, on the west coast, get it? That's why I'm interested in Revelation, the west coast. Uh, where there's a lot of wacky things happening, Uh, the west coast of Asia Minor. And these were cities that were dominated by paganism, pluralism, affluence, uh, not too conducive, not too naturally friendly to this message of a new king who's come to establish an eternal and global kingdom. Some of the churches, as we know from chapters 2 and 3, were beleaguered by overt oppression and persecution. Think of the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia and Pergamum, where one of the faithful witnesses of Jesus, Antipas, had already laid down his life for the gospel. Other of the churches in other cities were more, not so much beleaguered and attacked as beguiled by false religion, dominant paganism, even just the comforts of affluism, affluence. Much affluism, that's a pretty good word. I just made that up. It's a new ism. So some of the churches were facing the persecution that our brothers and sisters many places in the world are facing even even to this day. Central Asia, South Asia, uh, Sudan, and other places. Other churches are facing more the situation we face in America with all the subtle assaults on our faith. Uh, But they needed to see Jesus, first of all. They needed to see their situation as God sees their situation. And that's why John receives these visions. They show us, in a sense, a view of reality behind the surface of things. Think of them like an MRI or a CAT scan or a sonogram. They make visible what's going on under the skin of history. And, of course, in doing so, they also point us not only to a diagnosis, but to the real cure, to the reality that the Lamb is on the throne. When I think of Revelation as a CAT scan or as an MRI that shows things you can't see on the surface, I think of a a mutual friend who, a friend of mine whom other friends told me about this week who had been feeling under the weather in this past couple of weeks and he really didn't want to pay to go to the doctor. So he did what any uh, computer literate curious person now in North America does and that he, he listed all his symptoms and he went to... Google, of course. He went to Google. 
And he found that uh, he was, uh, not only had mononucleosis, but three or four other serious diseases that required four months of solid bed rest. And it didn't cost him a penny to get the diagnosis. Hmm, yes. Uh, they had also, these other friends had spoken to a physician and described his symptoms, and he said, I'm almost sure he doesn't have, I need to do some tests, need to run some blood work, need to do this and that, but I'm almost sure he doesn't have mononucleosis. Uh, and that's just from hearing them. But sometimes you need that deeper set of tests. But I'm afraid sometimes we're like our friend, my friend, who uh, wants to be self-reliant and wants to stay away from costly diagnoses and cures. Uh, and so God knows that we need to see more deeply what's going on in our lives. And that's the point of John's visions here. Jesus is painting in very broad strokes and vivid colors on our imaginations. Uh, a reality to make us come alive, to make us come alert to realities that we would perhaps not see if he didn't show them to us. So we come to this chapter, and as, as the drama unfolds, we see here in particular three truths that have momentous implications for the global mission of the church to spread the gospel throughout the world. And that's what I want to draw your attention to this morning. The truth of the Lamb's unique authority. And then the truth of the Lamb's surprising victory. And finally, the Lamb's supreme worthiness. First, the Lamb's unique authority. And you see that in this puzzling, troubling scroll that is sealed and in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. Now we're plunging into John's vision midstream. It began at the beginning of chapter 4 when he was summoned up to heaven to enter into a doorway in heaven in prophetic inspiration. John says, in the spirit, and that's his way of saying, God gave me a vision that was far beyond anything that I would naturally experience. And he sees God enthroned in heaven. He calls him the one seated on the throne. He radiates beautiful light and glory. He's surrounded by his attendants, by four living creatures who are described in ways that resemble the seraphim that Isaiah saw in his great vision in chapter 6 of his prophecy and resemble the cherubim whom Ezekiel saw in his visions. And these creatures closest to the throne praise God for who he is, because he's limitless in his holiness, in his power, and in his eternal life. And then also around the throne are 24 elders, uh, in a sense they, the council members, uh, who are there in the presence of God's court, perhaps representative of the people of God. And they praise him for his works of creation and providence, for his sustaining and governing the universe that he's made. So as we come to the end of Revelation 4, we have this sense of being taken away from the miseries of the island of Patmos, the temptations facing the church at Laodicea or Sardis, the persecutors facing the church at Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira or Philadelphia, we have a sense God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. But then, John sees the scroll, 
And obviously the scroll is important. In fact, it's vitally important. It's so important that a great strong angel sends out a proclamation asking who would be worthy, who would have the dignity and the weight and the right to take the scroll and to open it. John senses if this scroll is not opened, all is lost. And so the word goes out. This obviously is a scroll that requires top security clearance. Only one person apparently, well, John doesn't even know that there's one at the beginning, who has the password to unlock the file. And it seems as if no one does at first. As the word goes out, who is worthy? No one is found worthy, at least initially, in John's vision. And John realizes this is tragic. He begins to sob loudly, uncontrollably. Now, you might ask yourself, if the scroll is sealed, how does John know how important it is? Does he have a sense of what's in it? And I don't have an answer to that. Everybody who ever writes on Revelation ought to be honest enough to say, I don't know some things about this. But somehow he knows. Now, by the time he actually sets pen to papyrus, he does know. Because as a matter of fact, he's told us what's in the scroll. He introduces this whole book, Revelation 1-1, describing it as the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he goes on to talk about God gave him this scroll by sending his angel to give it to John to preach to the churches. Well, what we see here is God giving the revelation to, we're not quite there yet, but we will see him give the revelation to the Lamb. And the Lamb will open the seals. And then in chapter 10, the unsealed scroll will be given by the angel to John, who is to eat it, as Ezekiel was told to eat it, and then to preach to reveal what was in the scroll. So by that point, John knows, but he doesn't know now. So why does he take us sort of through the suspense and the trauma that he experienced before he learned that there was one worthy? He does that to make us appreciate how worthy the one who receives the scroll has to be. He is absolutely Matchless. There is no other one in the whole universe, heaven, earth, under the earth, anywhere. There's no one anywhere who deserves to open the scroll except, except the one whom the elder introduces, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one worthy. There is one who can take the scroll. And as the father gives the scroll to the lion, come to that in just a moment, in a sense what John is seeing is in a dramatic form what Jesus said in the Great Commission. We're back to missions. What did Jesus say when he appeared to his disciples on that hill in Galilee? All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, make disciples of all the nations. 
All authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus was echoing a vision given to Daniel in the Old Testament. In the seventh chapter of Daniel's prophecy, Daniel saw God's heavenly court, the ancient of days, uh, enthroned there in the midst of the court with uh, fiery, radiant glory emanating from him. And then John saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds. And Daniel said, I saw him as he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All authority given to him, all nations brought under his rule. Jesus is quoting virtually, commenting on, fulfilling the vision of the Son of Man given to Daniel in Daniel 7. Now, of course, if we'd been preaching all the way through Revelation, we would remember then John saw Jesus as one like a Son of Man in the first chapter. And here we see this one like a Son of Man receiving this scroll symbolic not just of the authority to reveal, but of the authority to rule, to carry out the plan that the Father has inscribed in that scroll in his eternal plan of victory over all of his enemies. We need that. Your missionaries need that. That vision that Jesus has all authority. It's not by accident that Jesus began the Great Commission there. Missions, the spread of the gospel, as you know, advances in a difficult world, in a hostile world, in a time when violence and injustice threaten the lives of God's people, in a time when, even when things are not physically threatening, the advance of the gospel faces all kinds of annoyances and frustrations and setbacks. The word really is planted like fragile seed in all kinds of soil. And even though it grows, some of the soil is not friendly. We need to see the unique authority of the Lamb as he takes the scroll. The hymn writer got it right when he taught us to sing to ourselves and one another, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. The battle is not o'er. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. So we need to see that. It's only a vision of the authority of Christ that will give us the stamina, the staying power to pursue that long obedience in the same direction that is involved in the spread of the gospel to the farthest corners of the earth. We also need to see the Lamb's surprising victory. Verses 5 through 10 focus on that. The victory is in the fact that he was slain. I, I ran ahead a little bit <coughs> to point out that the Lamb would receive the scroll, but go back with me to verse 5 for just a moment. The elder introduces the one worthy as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, who is conquered. Now that fits. That's the kind of person we want to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is the kind of mighty military leader that we would expect to be able to wage war against all that is wrong in this world that seems oft so strong. The imagery here that the elder uses comes from 
ancient, ancient scripture. All the way back in Genesis, Moses records the dying words of Jacob as he pronounced blessings on his sons. Well, sort of blessings, actually. Mixed blessings on some of them, especially the first three. Reuben, the firstborn, should have been the leader of all. Not so for Reuben. Nor Simeon, nor Levi. Each of them had displeased their fathers and dishonored the Lord in various ways. Finally, he gets to number four, Judah. And about Judah, he says, he will rule and he will conquer. Your brothers will praise you, Jacob says about Judah. Your father's son shall bow before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet. And he will conquer. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Old Jacob, with feeble eyes, looks down through the centuries, through the generations, and he sees King David, first of all, I suppose, King David, whom the women of Israel would praise. David had slain his tens of thousands. Jacob had called Judah also a lion's cub. He is crouched like a lion. Who will rouse him? That's David, the great military victor. So it makes perfect sense when the elder says, what we're looking for is someone like David. Someone who's a lion in his victory. Powerful. More powerful than David. But then we go to verse 6. And suddenly we see not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb that has been slain. Not a mighty lion, a predator attacking others, but one who has been a victim himself. And yet, this lamb is not lying like a dead carcass. He's standing. He's been slain, and yet he's standing. And not only is he standing, but he has the emblems of great power and great knowledge and wisdom. He has seven horns. Horns, a picture of of aggressive strength. And to the seventh power is like we would say to the nth degree. He's almighty. And he has seven eyes. Interpreted as the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold Holy Spirit of God going out in all the earth. He knows everything. He sees everyone inside and out. He has attributes that only God has. He's omnipotent, all powerful. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And he's alive from the dead. Is he the lion of Judah that the elder just introduced? Or do we have some sort of cruel bait and switch here? Well, we see the answer to that in that he goes to the Ancient of Days, he goes to the Enthroned One, and he receives the scroll. He's worthy to do that. But what about the conquering? What about the triumph? Well, we hear a new song now. And the new song shows that the lion's triumph is the lamb's death. Worthy are you to take the scroll, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for... You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the lion's victory, because he was slain as the lamb. And as he was slain as the lamb, he recaptured those whom Satan had captured. 
He reconquered those whom Satan had taken captive. Those whom Satan had stolen from God, the lamb wins back to their rightful owner, to God our creator and our rightful ruler. And these captives, you notice, belong to all the nationalities of the human race. And they speak all of the tongues spoken all over the globe to the farthest corners of the earth. It's no wonder, is it, that the Apostle Paul has to write to the Corinthians that the cross looks like weakness and foolishness. They were into the wisdom and power of the world as it defines it. But Paul says, no, the cross may look like weakness and foolishness, but it's no wonder that he can describe it as the focus of the power and the wisdom of God. This conquest, this victory, is far more powerful than anything that David won. International coalitions, military weaponry, no-fly zones, might repress the aggression of a North African tyrant, or they might not. But nothing less than the death of the Son of God can dethrone Satan from the human heart. Far more powerful. Far more powerful. So the church's gospel mission among all the nations to the ends of the earth finds its source in this victory that the Lamb has won. King Jesus' authority is not mere raw power to suppress the resistance of unwilling subjects. No, Jesus' kingdom authority is the power of heart-transforming grace. He conquers our unruly hearts by laying down his life for us, by enduring the righteous wrath of the Father that we have coming to us so that he might lavish upon us the Father's righteous approval which Jesus has coming to him. The victory of his suffering lays claim to the loyalty of all peoples, you and me, but also to all the peoples among all the nations and tribes and tongues on the face of the earth. The surprising victory of the Lamb. And then John is led in his vision to see the Lamb's supreme worthiness. He's worthy not only to open the scroll, to take in hand God's plan for the rest of history, to bring the nations captive by the power of grace, applying the blood of Christ shed on the cross, but he's worthy of all praise and honor. And so we hear songs of praise, three songs actually. Uh, That first one that we looked at in verses 9 and 10, but then two more as well. The worthiness of the Lamb shows us the goal of the mission of the church. I suspect a number of you at some time have read John Piper's wonderful little book, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. I don't know if you were surprised. I'd heard so much about it, I finally got around to reading it. I was really surprised by the first sentence. Did it surprise you? First sentence. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. I thought, well, that's an interesting way to start a book when you're trying to motivate people to missions. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. That's what Piper said, right up front. I thought, hmm, 
But then he went on, and I saw his point. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Piper has caught the point of the drive of this vision that ultimately the the lambs capturing the nations is for the glory of the triune God. We see the Father and the Son center stage here, but the Spirit always is functioning to bring glory to God who deserves all glory. Why should we care about (coughs) missions? Well, because missions have reached us and we should be grateful, certainly. We should be moved to gratitude and love that the Lamb has paid so great a price to make us people for God. And certainly we should care about our fellow human beings that without the gospel of grace reaching them and applied by the sovereign spirit of God, they face an eternity of judgment for having defied the Creator and worshipped creatures rather than the Creator who is to be blessed forever. So, of course, compassion for our fellow human beings should move us to mission. But ultimately, as John sees here and hears here, missions count so much because it is about the glory of God. It enriches and enhances the splendor of God that he receives from all of his creatures. The Lamb has purchased us for God in order to make us priests, which is to say servants who are privileged to stand and wait on God, to attend to his pleasure, and to admire his beauty. And the priesthood comes from all the nations. And so as the Lamb receives the scroll, not only is he praised by the four living creatures and the 24 elders, but then the choir begins to expand Next, we hear myriads and myriads. That's tens of thousands of tens of thousands. Multiply it out. I think that's 100 millions by 100 millions. And thousands of thousands, millions and millions of angels praising the Lamb and acknowledging that he is worthy to receive everything we could possibly offer for his glory. Power and wealth, wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. Seven. The number seven is kind of important in the book of Revelations. It means everything's included. Seven offerings of tribute and adoration. And then in verse 13, the choir gets even bigger. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, praising the Father and the Son to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. They praise God both as creator but preeminently as redeemer. In Revelation 5, we hear about the redemption of this international group. In Revelation 7, we actually see and hear this international choir of praise. Revelation 7, 9, the the text from which your new missions newsletter has drawn its title, From Every Nation. Revelation 7, as I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From every nation, no one can count them. A numberless host. Picture it. When I was in college, just the other day, well, okay, actually my notes say in ancient times, but anyway, I still remember first time in our college chapel hearing and singing for all the saints who from their labors rest. And I was moved by the early verses that praise the name of Jesus for strengthening and fortifying his people to bear witness before a hostile world. I was moved, but when it got to about verse 5, I began to be more than moved. When we saw the saints triumphant rise in bright array as the king of glory moves along, passes on his way. And then I got to the last verse, and I just dissolved. I couldn't sing it. I just couldn't sing it. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, countless host, Singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia, alleluia. Do you see it? That's the goal of missions. From every nation, a countless host streaming into the new Jerusalem, singing praise to God. This is that innumerable international choir that Christ is now assembling through the heralding of the gospel, in the word of truth, in deeds of mercy, He's sovereignly calling from the earth's peoples. People who will blend their voices. Will we blend all our languages? Maybe so. I'm not sure how that works. But to bring praise to God. World missions is all about the lion who is the lamb. In these last days, which dawned when Jesus emerged in victory from the tomb, in these last days, our efforts to spread the good news are grounded in the lamb's supreme authority focused on his surprising triumph at the cross and aimed toward his most excellent worthiness to be praised by all the earth's peoples. What a privilege we have. What a privilege we have. Not only to have been ransomed by God, by sheer grace, by the blood of the Lamb, but also to be enlisted in this great cause of letting the nations know about the Lamb's mighty triumph and his matchless majesty. Let's pray together. Father, our minds are so often occupied with the surface of things, the skin of experience that we see day by day. Thank you for showing us in depth the greatness of the Lamb and the greatness of your project to bring the people from all the world's peoples, tribes, languages, and nations together to worship you through the Lamb and the songs that your Holy Spirit gives us for all eternity. Lift our eyes, help us to see through the surface, to see what's really going on, and move us with joy and perseverance to fulfill our calling 
in dependence upon your grace in this great project in which you are engaged in these last days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.